This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, LSPod fans. It's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parking or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off could be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonalds.com hello and welcome to the Love strangers a swindon town fan podcast with me rich pullen proudly sponsored by the stfc official supporters club rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside beautiful play that is that what a good shot How we win this league anyway? Richard, he's hit it. It's Crabbley! Oh, it's Hello and welcome to the Low Strangers podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. My guest for this episode is Colin Calderwood. Wow. This is a huge episode for me as Colin was one of my favourite players during those early years of following this football club and (laughs) he proudly owns the number five shirt in my all-time Swindon Town 11 for which he's also the captain. So how important is Colin Calderwood to Swindon Town Football Club? Well he arrived when Town were a mid-table Division 4 side and when he left we were just about to have our one and only season in the Premier League. He was our captain during Town's record-breaking Division 4 Championship campaign. He led us to Division 3 playoff glory in 1987 thanks to that epic trio of fixtures against Ginningham. He led us, as mentioned, to the top flight. Twice. Well, once. But we talk about that. And finally, he's 10th in Swindon Town's all-time appearances list. Colin was brilliant throughout this process and he was even better during the recording and I cannot thank him enough. This was also another episode that came to fruition thanks to the assistance from a listener. I cannot emphasise as well how grateful I am to those who work behind the scenes just to help me out. Thank you so much. Anyway, it's time to sound the hooter for the Low Strangers podcast. Enjoy.
Colin Calderwood. Hello. Good evening. I've got to be honest, I'm a bit nervous going into this one because I am talking to number five on my Rich Pullen all-time 11. I've spoken to number one, Fraser Digby, spoken to number three, Paul Bowden, and even number nine, which is Sam Parkin. But now I've got my captain, my number five, Colin Coldwood. That's very kind of you. <laughs> There's not much you can say to that, is there? After no, that, but... <laughs> but we'll start with the usual question for these podcasts. And that question is, who did you support when you were younger and who were your footballing heroes as a child? Well, I grew up in Stranraer. We were, I was born in Glasgow, which is, gets wrong in many programmes that they thought I was born in Stranraer. But we moved to Stranraer when I was uh, two so my, my sort of childhood was following Stranraer, who was, they were in the second division when there was only two divisions. And that was probably a Christmas present from my, my dad's dad every year was a season ticket. And that was, used to turn up and in those days used to get anything from 1800 to two and a half thousand in, um, for home games. Used to kick off at two o'clock because we didn't have floodlights, used to be the first team finished on a Saturday. And we'd get home and get the results, so. Predominantly, I, I followed Stranraer, and then, you know, of the bigger clubs, probably then the, the first team that captured my imagination was the the Manchester United team that won promotion and, and played in the in League Two, just because they were, not because it was Manchester United. When I look back, it looks as if we just jumped on the bandwagon, but the brand brand of football with Gordon Hill and. Um, Stuart Pearson, uh, Stuart Houston at the back, Martin Buchan. Um, it, it was that team that captured my imagination with, a, um, as I say, their style and the flair that they had in the team and the youngness of it to begin with. And we enjoyed, although we didn't get too much English football where we lived, Sunday afternoons was probably, it was Granada at that time, was the, the channel that we could get again at my grandparents because we couldn't get it at our, at our house so seems archaic now when you're talking about not being able to get any game on a TV but that that's the way it was I mean I'm only 36 but I remember finding out results from your time playing for Swindon and finding out because I wasn't local in the papers the next day or, or even you know you know if I was a bit more streetwise watching the video printer come in on grandstand but it's just crazy that sort of advance in technology and, and televised football in in just the last 20 30 years it's amazing really and and the access and probably you know at the very start of my football career the, the way that you communicated with my parents when I was an apprentice at Mansfield was queuing in outside a phone box to make that phone call so all those things are completely different now and um it, it, it really was a long time ago, I know that, but it's when you start to talk about the details of the and the technology as it is now, and you think back to what it was and how you lived your life as a teenager and a youngster growing up and getting football scores and watching football. And, um, you know, the, the only football I can remember on the TV were the home internationals and FA Cup finals, and there was nothing else ever live. So what, what are your earliest memories of playing football as a junior up in Scotland? Uh, probably the same as everybody else, you know, primary school. School football that led into regional football and then from regional, we're quite remote, it's 
if you were to say where Plymouth is and where Plymouth is in England, Stranars in the, the South West, and it, it's, you know, it'll be, in those days, it was an hour and 20 minutes to get to here. It was over two hours to get to Glasgow, probably still is. And it's two and a half hours to get to um, sort of Dumfries. And out of the school football, when we went to senior school, was Dumfries, which was obviously round about just over 80 miles away. So it was always a two and a half hour bus journey on a Saturday morning for away games. Two schools in Dumfries, a school at Dalbiti, all those far-flung places that sound very exotic and are not. <laughs> so that begs the question, how does a kid based in Stranra end up at Mansfield Town? Well, again, it's through the school football and as, as I mean, it was very strong then. And from, from that, you got into regional football and then regional football, it was always a cup competition. And then the trials to get into um, like, uh, under-15s. So, and through those games, we, was probably our only access into... Uh, the scouts that were in Central Belt of Scotland, or maybe even the northeast of, uh, or the northwest of England, sort of Carlisle area. So they, they would be, very rarely would a scout come down to Stranraer in those days. And also there was a local team that we played for called uh, a local boys club, Block Ryan, which was really had a, a huge impact on me because it gave us, gave us games on Sundays from teams travelling from air. Glasgow, Stirling, and we also travelled with the boys club and sort of returned those fixtures all round. And that gave us the um, the difference of opposition that you don't get when you're playing the same people time after time in, in your local region. So uh, between the two of them, that was the sort of first touching point that any scouts or any anyone would have taken in notice from, prob- not just myself, but anybody from Stranraer. And we got invited through one of those games or one of the school games to um, join. I was invited to join a United Boys Club, and they played on a Saturday at two o'clock in the in the Scottish League, and would play against Kilmarnock and teams names names who you you wouldn't know, but Easter House and teams that you would know like Glasgow Celtic Boys Club and other clubs that probably associated themselves with. Maybe an Aberdeen or a, a Rangers, but they weren't named those those team names at that time. So um, that's where it was. And I got I played once you played with United, there were scouts at all those games, and you started to train a bit more, and 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 also with a higher level of player. It's interesting, isn't it? Because England doesn't really do the boys' club to the same degree as Scotland does. I mean, we have we all know about Wolves End. Up in in the northeast, but like Hutchison Vale in Edinburgh, that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, Hutchison Vale um, and the sort of famous ones. Uh, Drum Chapel was always is, is quite a renowned. Yeah, uh, for lots of players that had started in sort of uh, Glasgow and football. Drum Chapel with Davy Moyes' dad was a very big player in and around that boys' club. But you're right, the I men boy, the boys' club was quite a big thing. It was it was an association, and you had. Um, the boys' club sort of Scottish Cup for various age groups, and we were a we were a small sort of rural town. Like anywhere, they will have some good players, but you you probably don't develop as quick, and you're not as hardened as a lot of the city boys, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Dundee, probably all, all around there. Once you do access them, you, you had to have a you had to be lucky that your group was strong enough to compete with them to give yourself any chance. So, um, and and 
my age group sort of couple of years ahead and and my age group as such been sort of born in 65 we were quite a good group and we did okay and on lots of occasions and that that obviously helped people give one or two of us a chance to go on trial and it was from that there was uh, four people from the United Boys Club went down and we had a trial at Mansfield so in reality I was going to Ipswich for a trial but they rang up the the week before and said that they'd been oversubscribed for the school holidays and me and another lad, we, there was no space for us but the, the Ipswich scout knew the Mansfield scout and he gave him a call and four of us went down there they did have room so Ipswich at the time were vying with uh, Liverpool to win the league Bobby Robson and um, which was really exciting to go down there and, and in the end we went to Mansfield who were competing for promotion and Division four, as it was, then. quite a contrast. So it was a vast difference, but <laughs> we went there and um, we got invited back and went down for a weekend. You know, we left uh, the second time we went. We we left Stranraer about sort of two o'clock on a Friday afternoon. My mum and dad drove to Mansfield with me and a goalkeeper from the United Boys Club, and uh, we got to the hotel or the ground round about ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at night. Went to bed. Got up and then played Notts Forest, A team with Mansfield A team, so which was opened age, and we we were then probably under under sixteen at that age, and we were playing against apprentices and full pros, because that's the way the age groups worked at that time. Well, there's only one way you can get fit is to run, and uh, most days we go out here and we run to start with, and then uh, then we play with the ball. In 2019, moving from Stranraer to Mansfield is a pretty big deal, quite a daunting uh, move. How did you find it? Well, in the end, it's it's if you wanted to uh, progress, you pro- you had to leave Stranraer, really, in reality. Mm-hmm. So um, probably a little story that happened, which um, I've, I've told quite a few people. So Man- Mansfield signed. I was still at school. I signed my, my papers. They offered me an apprenticeship and I signed. And they said they couldn't register that until uh, I'd left school. So I, was, I had to finish my exams, which was March. And then I would join them end of June, beginning of July, whenever it was. In the meantime, we, we played, still playing with Air Boys Club and we played in a tournament. And I, I ended up getting an offer from Glasgow Rangers to go on their ground staff. And the way I was approached was basically I was asked... Um, the guy told me who he was and he was scouting for Rangers and he would ring my dad. So he rang my dad. He asked me what school I went to, Stranraer Academy, which is in Scotland is was just an open school, a mixed school. And if truth be known, he asked me, uh, he says, you're not one of them, meaning a Catholic, which which I wasn't. And I knew exactly what he meant. Mm-hmm. So when he asked, when he rang, he rang sort of the midweek because my dad was on a shift on the, on the ferry that he worked on. And um, he told them the Rangers would like to offer me a three-year ground staff contract. And the Mansfield deal could be null and void because I signed it when I was still at school. And that, that wasn't, they weren't really allowed to do that. So we dadded his principles and uh, he said, no, he won't be coming. And he said, <laughs> he said, why not? He said, well, you asked him what school he went to. On a, and on a point of principle, he, he wouldn't let me. It didn't entertain them any further, so I went to Mansfield instead of even having the opportunity to go to Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> it's remarkable, isn't it? But that seems that's a running theme. Like Dad knows best seems to be quite a running theme in the conversations that I have. But that transfer policy, funny enough, I was just reading up about it the other day because um, 
Simon Ferry, ex-Swindon player, he has a podcast and he was talking to somebody about that, uh, Peter Grant it was actually, and he was talking about the Mo, the Mo Johnston transfer and it's just remarkable that that until very recently was in place, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's probably very hard for um, the majority of people in England to understand it because it's still it's probably not as big a problem as it was then, but it's still there's still quite a divide between, yeah. uh, and it goes beyond just supporting Celtic and Rangers. You know, it's there's 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 a nasty side to it that you know shouldn't be there, but still is in Scotland. So, but yeah. it's um, it's not it's not particularly good, but for the the disappointment at the time because it was a bit of glory <laughs> going to Rangers, of course, but. Yeah. I really value my dad's principle, and I, th- I think it was probably well. It is entirely right. Well, it it worked out because you make a hundred league appearances in Division Four under the management of Stuart Bowen. Is that right? And uh, Ian Greaves as well. Outside of outside of Mansfield, it's sort and it's sort of a forgotten part of your career. Um, but judging by a lot of the comments I read when I do research for this, you were very popular character at Field Mill and they were very disappointed to see you go but that was you know up before you're 21 you've got 100 games under your belt so it was a great learning curve for you I imagine oh no I mean it was terrific and it's it's probably in now I'm in coaching and I've been involved at first team level now but at senior level um, when I've coached reserve players at Tottenham or have been Giving advice to reserve players that some of the other teams have been at, because I've been that's the way I learned. I believe that's the right way that young players that I think they should play and they should play at as early as possible and go out. And you know, it's not. I didn't. I don't think I suffered so much from not being in one of the bigger clubs or the academies as such. Now, and if you know, for a, for a number of years, there was l- at least. Well, at least half the England team, their experience would have started in the lower leagues. And even even recently, if you go back recently, and until until maybe in the last two three years, lots of players in the England team right at the top, the start of their career has been uh, a, an involvement either entirely with a football league club, a lower down, and even non-league, or it's been out and loan. And that's how that was a first footsteps into the game so I, I, I firmly believe in that that's the best way to be so and even even the, uh, the under 18s or the 18 was an open age league so you played against you could play against pros and in the first year we played against Justin Fashion who, who was a million pound player for Nottingham Forest and he was probably the first guy who broke my nose if I'm honest <laughs> so <laughs> I've uh, that's sort of not been closeted in Playing in an age group bracket really, really helped me. And being at a club that they didn't have the finances to always go and loan people gave me my first, my first chances, obviously. And and so I earned the I earned my reputation, but I really learned off some good pros. Steve Whitworth was right back for Mansfield when I played there. And he played for England and Leicester. Immaculate standards of training, and then people who were in. I mean. To term them as hard players, people <laughs> like Billy Ayer, centre half, and George Foster, centre half, and Kevin Burbley was the captain. I mean, proper good footballers, proper tough, tough men. 
who really looked after me, Billy here especially, was the one who was my guardian angel when I first started. And whenever anyone took a liberty with the young centre-half next to him, he pointed out that don't do that again or I'd see them in the tunnel. <laughs> and more than, more than one occasion, I've heard the slap of someone getting punched walking up the tunnel and then sort of sliding down the wall when I've turned round because if they did take a liberty with me, he he sorted them out on and off the pitch. Does that sort of stuff happen now? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, I dare say it doesn't. I think the last example I can think of is like Gary Neville and, and Roy Keane sort of having a go at Patrick Vieira and it just all looked very pathetic and obviously there was no fisticuffs or anything like that but it just wasn't a good look, was it? No, no, no. <laughs> it's Listen, it's... I mean, there's loads of things that you, that we did as players that you we couldn't do even even in and around Swindon. Some of the things that we got up to, you just you wouldn't say it was the most professional thing. But in the early days at Swindon, it was really my f- first development of being really in the centre of a, a real good team spirit and a team that really worked hard and were fit and did loads and loads of things together, you know, mm. and on and off the pitch. Whipping in the crosses from the left and the right-hand side. Here's McLaughlin. McLaughlin to try a shot. It's off Gary Bennett, and that is the opening goal. Alan McLaughlin. Lou Macari's first season was reasonable on the pitch, but a little chaotic off because he was sacked and then reinstated. And you arrived during his second summer. A rebuild along with Kenny Allen from Torquay, Brian Wade from Trowbridge and uh, the return of old favourites like Chris Kamara and David Moss. Football in 1985. How much choice do you have? Because it sounds like you're having a great time at Mansfield learning a lot. Could you pick and choose where you could go if there was demand? Or was it this Swindon to put in a uh, acceptable bid off your trot? No, I mean, I, uh, my contract was up and Steve Wentworth, who I mentioned before, he said to me, whatever, whatever you do, just turn down the turn down the contract. And so I turned it down and then he said, go in and ask for a, a signing on fee, which I did. But the signing on fee they offered to give me was only taking £10 or £20 off per week to give me a £500 or £1,000 signing on fee. So I didn't really, I wasn't gaining anything. So I went home to Stranraer. And I got a phone call, and it was Lou McCarry. Could have, would have come and meet him. So uh, I went to meet him. And you're right, Mansfield. I mean, Ian Grees got particularly upset about me leaving. But in the end, the, the deal to go to Swindon was obviously financially better. And Lou McCarry being the manager and being obviously ex-Manchester United, but also Scotland internationally, he was he was quite prominent in my childhood. Yeah, a member of that second so, division side as well, isn't he? Yeah, it would have been. So all that sort of lent itself to thinking it's exciting. And also, what happened towards the end of the previous season, Swindon had one or two results that were quite out of the ordinary by sort of real heavy away victories. And and it just stood out in my mind when I was at Mansfield that obviously something good might be happening there. So that's uh, it was the opportunity. I went down and that was really the beginning of me sort of growing up and and a huge part of the development of what people think my career is. Sure. So, Lou Macari, they say don't meet your heroes. Well, you went and played for one of yours. How was how was Lou? Yeah, no, it was um, um, quite an eye-opener. <laughs> <laughs> quite an eye-opener because 
as is well has been well versed about his fitness. And in reality, you know, it it gave me the base and the foundation for having any chance to play higher up or even to even play in, in Division Four at that time because the training the training just was extreme. And it certainly helped me. It definitely helped me. And and probably the early style and being able to uh, use a little bit of the experience that the tough boys at Mansfield had, had shown me and standing my own two feet a little bit. Um, it certainly helped. If anything helped my game was, was the drilling, the fitness. And lots of it was complete nonsense and what we did and how we did it when you look back. But... We just you just got on with it because it was uh, in my head and in my mind he was making everybody slightly better. And mm. the beginning after a after a fairly awkward start, we were beginning to get slightly more successful. And um, the way the season went, so you just you know we, th- there was a group who would have done almost anything. He said, yeah. and we did some remarkable bits of training, which I'm sure I could. I'll be able to tell you about people from say maybe my generation and a little bit younger because I started watching Swindon under Ozzy Ardiles, uh, so I missed the Macari era unfortunately. But a lot of what you say, people relate to the Decanio era, this sort of hard training regime, but ultimately getting the best out of the players. And I get so many requests from town fans about the Macari era to try and get Macari era players on and what I would love to know and you're going to go there now is just what is extreme because it doesn't sound like you're going to make Carl Noyle or Mark Richards do this at Cambridge at the moment but but what is extreme and and how how did you sort of sign up to it so so readily well I mean his belief is you 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 had to be as fit as you possibly could be so you we used to used to train in a way, and also in some way we used to, used to basically he would tell us we weren't good enough to play the football that everybody thought you should could play or should play, and that listen, there's no use me passing it to another centre half because he would lose it, and if someone passed to me, I would lose it. So get it up in the danger area. That's where goals are scored, and then um, the way we trained, you know, Tuesdays was. A track day, which it was at many, many clubs, but as the season wore on at most clubs, they would ebb away a little bit. Where we, we would just go and do a track session on a Tuesday, which would, you know, probably was a twelve-minute run, two eight hundred meters, four four hundred meters, eight two hundreds, and eight one hundred, something like that. That would be your session. We wouldn't touch a ball, we wouldn't need to touch a ball because we weren't good enough to do with it. But if we were fit, we might be able to compete. That was a sort of mantra. And and then there was also a competitive edge, Andy Rowland, Chris Kamara. Um I mean Chris was very real good athlete as well. Um and and some of the things we did, we used to get the minibus up to up to the downs and we'd we'd just go and run. We'd just run up and down there. There would be no real sense to it. Run to there and then stop and stretch, run back to there, run up up and back in a relay race. And then at one time we were waiting on the minibus coming back, uh, Kevin Morris to pick us up, and and uh, Lou said, he says right, there's um, um, the first ten that run down, run round that tree and put the shorts on the head and run back up can get in the minibus, and and the other six, the last six, 
you're going to have to run home. So we were off like hares, honestly. <laughs> At the top of a hill, ran round a tree, took our shorts off, put it on our head and ran back up. <laughs> and then we used to play on uh, the extension well between the ground and the uh, the cricket pitch and where the track was. And and we used to play a possession game and we used to have to hit it off um, four of the trees. So you used to pass the ball against those big oak trees or the big trees that are there. They'd obviously bounce off in any direction, run down the path. And we'd be hearing about after the ball with absolutely no logic behind what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the the other one when he had when Lou had uh, the young retriever or young lab, and um, we're training on the pitch one day, and the only way he said right once you've touched the dog you can go in. So you can imagine a young a young dog with like fifteen twenty people trying to chase her round a stadium. He, he loved it. We couldn't get anywhere near him. We were hearing all over the stadium trying to touch a dog so we could go in and get changed. <laughs> and there was no sort of... There was no members of the squad that was like, come on, Lou, we're footballers. Let's, let's play some football. Uh, no, there was. Yeah, no, there was, there was <laughs> lot, lot, lots of bits of dissent, you know. It, it was, But, you know, there was a, a, I was fairly young. And, you know, I was beginning to feel I was doing better. I was certainly felt fitter. Mm. Um, Obviously, I don't know how much it improved me from a technical point of view. It probably didn't. But it gave us, we had a purpose to um, the group. And that was, we we just generally, we found ourselves being stronger than other teams Mm. as the season went on. And and the other thing that happened, not not only in in Lusier, what what happened was that that group group of players who were all there, whenever people came in and loan, right up to when Ross and Steve Foley and there was some good good footballers, but there were tough people as well. Steve White, when people came in and loan from other clubs, whether it be a Tottenham or a Millwall at that time, with a couple of boys from there or um, Southampton. The first thing that used to happen was someone would absolutely hit them with some sort of tackle in training <laughs> and find out what their reaction was. And if they took the huff, then that was probably them done. If they didn't take the huff and came back and had a go at you, then they were a bit more into the group. And uh, there was always someone just laid a bit of a laid a glove on someone when they came on loan as an introduction. And and they either faded away or they joined the group and and really became part of it. They were coming from a higher level and they were probably uh, on, they were definitely on more money than we were. Mm-hmm. But we let them know this is the way, there was there was a structure to the way we worked, and we weren't changing for anybody who was going to come from elsewhere. They adapted to, they added to, but had to adapt to the way we we played and trained. Nowadays, they just stand on a chair and sing a song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Listen, I've ended, I've ended up with sort of friends who you maybe don't contact for. Like, it could be a fortnight, it could be two years. Mm. But whatever you get together with people now, and that they've been in that Swindon team, like Paul Bowden or Al McLaughlin or Phil King, Chris Kamara, 
even Brian Marwood, who was in for a bit as yeah. well, you know. Nineteen ninety three. It all relates back to some incredible stories. <laughs> and the first thing we say is, can you remember that training we used to do, especially under Lou? Well, only under Lou. <laughs> certainly brought us brought us a bit of um, notoriety. It gave us a, a foundation of a name in the game. Mm. But Lou, Lou was really good. I did. It's making him sound almost prehistoric, but where he was really good was he managed to uh, recruit players into Swindon for um, small amounts of money and they get sold on for big, big money. So he's, he's recruited good, good players. No, I, 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 com- players who improved. I completely agree. And I, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to um, players from your generation who go into coaching because there's been a real transition of how you guys were educated and you either got to get on board with the modern techniques and philosophies or you're pretty much finished in many ways and you've had you know your your coaching career is almost as long as your playing career now so you've had to adapt but keep some of the same things that you learn as a player but but also adjust to the 21st century for want of a better phrase yeah yeah i, th- I think so but i mean what's also helped was the, the progression of my football career and the way it developed was from that I mean, real manic training that probably no very few teams did. And and as you progressed up the leagues, less and less teams did. So when we, we were in what is the championship, we played Aston Villa. And there was a stage we used to run. Uh, it was a six-mile run. Yeah. And we'd leave the ground, we'd go in twos and threes, and we'd go out the, out the uh, players' entrance in twos, a three-minute gap over the uh, magic roundabout, up out towards the post house, and back round and down, back to the ground. And we went. We we were good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I can re- I can remember it got to the stage where we'd come out and we um, we almost took no attention of the cars at the magic roundabout. You took the shortest <laughs> route. You went straight through it as almost the middle of it, to get the central reservation, to run up the central reservation, right over the next roundabout, and then get yourself on the left-hand side. And there was a stage where cars used to stop for us, and people us going, lads. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite quite remarkable. It's um, probably been enhanced a little bit, but we were, we were off like hares. Amazing. Well, well played. Hobble! Back to '85, and and you're in you're installed as captain pretty much straight away, aren't you? Was that was that a big incentive to you, or or, or had you been captain at Mansfield? Uh, no, no, I hadn't been captain. What what happened was I I, I was pretty rash and petulant as a defender, <laughs> and um, I was uh, right on the verge of getting suspended very early on after probably. Well, you could probably tell by whenever my first game as captain was. I can't remember who, who that was. But Lou said, listen, let's let's make you captain so you can meet the referee and that might help or might build a relationship because at the minute, every challenge you make, you're getting, you're getting booked. Uh, and remarkably, I was on, I think it was in, in those days, 18 points or 20 points took you over. And I, 
I was one booking away from being suspended for three games, probably around about this time of the year, you know, mm. end of September, early October. And remarkably, I, I didn't get booked again that season. Or I didn't I didn't get booked until the um, the bans had uh, almost ceased at the end of the season. So well, that was... That was that was why I was made captain to begin with, just to meet the referee and try and keep me a little bit calmer, probably to give me a bit more responsibility. Have faith in your in your in your memories. You're quite right. You, your last book in that season was in October of '85 against Stockport County, and then not one yellow for the remainder of the season. Well done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. Look, that, that season is iconic to Swindon fans, especially those who were there. And, I mean, it doesn't start that way. So after eight games, Town are right down in the bottom four of the fourth division. Well, your former club, Mansfield, is sitting pretty in third. Was there any point during that time where you were thinking, oh, God, what have I done? There probably was, yeah. No, um, because Mansfield had recruited probably... Um... A bit more experience, and then then one or one or two younger players had come into uh, the group. So obviously there was I had some ex teammates, friends there, but it was actually um, I was enjoying my life in Swindon so much that, um, but it became serious at one point. You know that that start. I remember the the Friday game. I th- I'm sure we played. It was Northampton we played, and and the paper as we came in, Lewis put in the back page I don't know what my team will be until I smell their breath sort of accusing <laughs> a group of us of drinking too much so uh, or going out which was which was probably true to a, to a certain degree and you know that was that was him starting to curb down on everything and really picking one or two and training intensified uh and I'm I'm sure that night we won the game three two with the weekend off. I actually remember driving from there. I went back to Scotland for for the weekend and then came back late on the Sunday. And you know it was such a relief to win that game, and and that more or less was the starting point of going undefeated for a long, long time. Yeah, good knowledge again, Peter Coyne hat trick. But I th- I, do you think the Sunderland Cup game was was a was a help as well? Yeah, I mean, it's we're getting we're getting to the stage where we that was when they it would take us to Lou would take us to the army camps for the cup games as well. Mm. So we'd leave we'd leave on the Saturday after a home game, and then we'd be there until the Tuesday. And you know we had some, but a couple of impressive league cup performances against teams higher up, i.e. Sunderland and Sheffield. I don't know if Sheffield Wednesday was that year or or the following year. Yeah, it was that year. Yeah. Yeah, um, and and we, as happens nowadays, we we've uh, created a bit of a shock and got through it. So, um, and that and that really added to a bit of belief. And it, obviously, what it what it also does, it puts your name and your team in the spotlight a bit more with the national media. Yeah. Uh, and and then, I think we all started to. Uh, want to justify one or two things that were getting said in the paper about us, which were beginning to become um, a bit more positive rather than uh, whether you had beer in your breath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, 
town become ruthless record breakers and, and we storm that league and it's incredible. My favourite, just looking at the results, is the fact that, what was it, six games in a row away and we won them all. Just absolutely incredible stuff. And, and I mean, you've already answered my question is what changed that? But isn't it football is so great? Is that mentality of when, when it's going right, it's just you could play anyone and it, and you become unstoppable. But I mean, surely nobody expected the conclusion to that season that, that we experienced as great as it was. No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, we, we had a nice run, and we obviously got started. And then I was in digs with Derek Hall and Colin Gordon, and um, I can remember probably prior to Christmas, beginning to work out when would it be possible to win promotion, or and like started started work out how many games have you got to win, and then when that continued, it didn't get any easier through. January or February and obviously it was getting closer and closer and, and it seems amazing now to think that you were, you were in any doubt of not going up because of the number of points that we did end up with but you know if, you, if you're nine points ahead and you lose one game the other team winning then it's six and then you've got to go to some all them doubts that you, you think well that's a hard game mm. but in the end we were, we were sort of not unstoppable because every team is stoppable, but we were, we were so driven. It was obviously my first promotion, and it must have first promotion for lots of people. Um, but like the evenings in the cup and the introduction of people like Brian Wade and um, the Badger from Bath, as he was known, <laughs> all, all, it was just there was a a group of us together added to the experience of Andy Rowland and Dave Moss and. And Kenny Allen, obviously, <laughs> it was um, there was a, a group of us who were really good friends off the pitch as well, and um, we used to have a, a right laugh and get up to all sorts of hijinks on occasions. But we almost we trained ourselves out of anything we ate or drank that was going to do us any harm. <laughs> it was it was just um, it, it, it didn't touch us really. Yeah, your first defensive partner in your town career is David Cole, and David Cole doesn't tend to get mentioned as much anymore. So uh, it's a good opportunity. I always love asking the sort of the the, the players that are, that are forgotten in time, and he he made a great contribution to that campaign as well. Yeah, I mean we were um, Dave Cole, Colin Gordon, Brian Wade, Derek Hall, uh, myself. We were all in the digs on Shrivenham Road, right on the corner to yeah. begin with. And then Lou Lou moved me and we well, moved me out, and he moved uh, Colin Gordon and Derek Hall ended up coming with me and went and stayed in digs with Harold and Maud, um, and and they started to look after us, and that was so so we were stuck together, but he got us away and it sort of put a little cub on um, a house just full of six young people growing up. Kenny Allen moved in and, and looked after one or two people who stayed in there, so there was a bit of, bit of control exerted on that end of it. Mm. But David Cole was, listen, he, he gets absolutely no mention at all in lots and lots of occasions, but he was so important to to us because he'd worked in a bank. He was the only guy with a, a card or a debit card at that time, <laughs> so he could pay for when we went out for a pizza or a meal. 
he could pay for his debit card and we were able to give him cash. And if we didn't have cash, we, if when we ran out, he would put it on that and we'd pay him back whenever we got our money. <laughs> so he was invaluable. <laughs> Worky. <laughs> 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 I've got no response to that, to be honest. <laughs> Outside the box to Moncair. Good run by him and now Maskell. Well, <laughs> the next season, 86, 87, it's funny, really, because we're breaking records in 85, 86. But from my childhood, I remember my dad talking about 86, 87 a lot more. And I, I try and sort of try and put that together because we're back in the third tier. We're very, very good. I, I can only imagine it's the season, the, the way the season ended is why my dad and many other fans of of his generation sort of look back so fondly at yet another season. And this is another case of Lou Macari. Just He's doing exactly what some of our most successful managers did, like Danny, Will- Danny Williams, where he, he didn't just buy all his players in, in one summer. He did it over several summers, didn't he? And so at, th- at this stage, you've got Fraser Digby coming in. You've got... Uh, you've got Tim Parkin coming in as your new um, centre-back partner. Jimmy Quinn's come back. Chris Ramsey. Steve White. Yeah, of course. And, and I mean, these these are legends at Swindon, but it's so impressive that Makari's scouting network are just managing to just bring these players in, just tweaking. It's, it's a bit like... Um, managers were ruthless they were like well you were good enough for me in the second tier but in in the first tier I'm letting you go because it's not quite what's what I need for this this campaign and it seemed to be the case with Makari yeah I think where it it was really good and and because Bristol Rovers when Steve White and Tim Parkin came in they'd Mm. they'd played in that division so they were accustomed to it and and they had the experience of that well there was lots of us obviously were going up to the next step and probably similar when he brought Chris Kamara in to um, brought him back and although he was going down a division he'd played at a higher level and then went back up to a higher level as well Chris so people like Dave Bamber as well had been at a higher level so there was there was enough people who'd been a step up or two steps up to give um, the rest of us a bit of a backbone and um, a bit of a spine to sort of breathe off and develop off a wee bit. Mm. And I think the Tim Parker and the Steve White were very, very important signings that year just because Steve, just for his aggression up front, and it suited Lou's style of play almost perfectly. And his his application, I mean, he was a, a complete and utter runner. And his application was perfect because he just he wanted to train hard. He wanted to be the fittest, fittest guy. And Tim Parkin was another guy who, who could really travel on longer distance runs. You know, like like myself, I wasn't particularly we weren't particularly sharp, but he had good, good endurance, good aerobic endurance. You know, and he was good in the air. He could stand against the bigger strikers, more powerful strikers, better than I could. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i going to ask you for anything that stands out from that year because it is, it is again, quite impressive. But the, the thing that I was alluding to before, it's, it's that conclusion because it's a bit of a slog for you that year. You played 51, what, 64 times in all competitions that season and it all boils down to one, 
denying Bristol City a, a playoff place, which I know, having being a resident of Bristol, they still talk about that now um, because all they needed to do was get a win at Ashton Gate against us and then um, Peter Coyne goes and gets an equaliser in the second half and it gets kicks off at the end of the game you know standard thing from the 80s in Bristol City and then of course the the epic playoff games firstly against Wigan and then Ginningham which is when you look at the format now it's ridiculous isn't it having to go all the way to uh, Selhurst Park to finish it off after two other games but a a hard-fought promotion I mean uh, um, can remember lots of the Wigan away game and how tough that was and Mm. and and then Somehow it was nothing each in the second leg, and that was enough to get us through. And and then the um, the first leg against uh, Gillingham, away being one behind, and I must admit, I did I did think we would win the second game. I, f- I felt we'd we'd score, and they would let the crowd would suck suck uh, the ball in for us a wee bit. Yeah. But then when we lost lost the first goal in the second leg, it, it's. You know, I don't think it was too long left in the second half before we got the first goal, and it was just a, it was it was like a vacuum sucked the ball and kept us going. And the, that Shrivenham Road was just I mean, it used to be used to create terrific noise because it was quite close to the pitch and it was uh, it was almost almost on top of you, um, and it was quite distinctive. When you got them going, you knew you were going to have a you, you know you were getting a helping hand, mm. um, and it, it, the thing about the game, the thing about the game at Crystal Palace was just just tr- try to remember um, after the game and we'd won was just I, I don't know what we did. We just came back in the bus. We did nothing special. <laughs> Probably tired. <laughs> yeah, we did. It was. Like, we were, we were warm out, you know. Mm. We were absolutely warm. Well, out. I just, I just want to give younger fans of Swindon just some perspective on these playoffs because you know older listeners will be beat for beat with this with you, and you're absolutely spot on. In the first leg of the uh, of the semi final against Wigan, Town are two nil down after 15 minutes, and we don't pull one back until Bamba scores. Uh, with about 18 minutes to go and then Jimmy Quinn and Peter Coyne do the rest and then we, we sort of scrape, well not scrape through, but we, we get a nil-nil at home and as you quite rightly point out in the in the final, we're 2 nil down on aggregate um, at one stage in that game and then as, again as you point out, Peter Coyne scores with about half hour to go and then Charlie Henry um, becomes a Swindon legend over two games, doesn't he really? I mean he was absolutely magnificent servant but can you imagine that on Sky Sports today in in May in 2019, 2020? I mean, it would be an absolute watch. Oh, no. Um, and it was. But we were sort of... Um, I mean, that, that, that sort of built up over a period of, of the two seasons, been, been, been winning games. But also, uh, uh, it obviously must have been a belief or just the ability never to give up. But also to be able to run strong. Mm. And be quick, and and you know that's where, as much as I'm sure you've had plenty of pros on saying it was ridiculous training we did, in the end, the, the benefit of the training we did certainly got us goals, points, promotions, because otherwise we, we wouldn't have the legs to play fifty or fifty-four games or whatever it was, you know, 
and then be going strong and chase a game from 2 nothing down. But listen, the team had art, the team had personality, that's what I had. Did you believe that promotion was a possibility or was it a case of we're just happy to be back in the third tier? But, but I guess the question is, at what at what time did you genuinely start to believe that, that a promotion may be on the cards back to back? I probably didn't think... Um, no, I didn't think we were capable of doing it in that first year. There was some good teams in there, but we, we gradually became... I'm not saying we became a, a better team. We we were just a bad team to play against for other teams. And if they didn't turn up and run hard, we probably ran by three or four of them and we competed more often. If, if they wanted an easier game, they probably didn't get it against us on lots of occasions. And that, that got us enough points to be... Um, when it came to the, the real competitive games at the end of the season, we 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 just we were on we were on the roll a little bit, mm-hmm. but even through the, through that period, I didn't think because we were we were dealing with there was obviously a club from a higher division could come come in, and would we beat them? Probably not. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't wouldn't expect you to beat the club from a higher division that was in the playoffs. So um, it, it's funny. Always felt we'd win promotion from Division Four, and even now I don't remember ever feeling we'd ever win promotion for in that season, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Is it? Because now we, we're now into the second tier, and this is what I call the season of solidation because we don't get promoted and it's a nice mid-table finish. But if you just look at the comparison of the football clubs you're playing against and the footballers you're playing against in the second tier for the 1987-88 season, it, it was it is it a nice transition going from, right, I'm a Division 4 footballer to, oh, let's see what it's like in Division 3. When you were going into your first season as a second tier footballer, were you thinking... Was there any other self self doubts, or were you like, I believe in Macari, I believe in my teammates. Let's let's, let's take these guys on. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm. I think there was more and more questions that 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 this wasn't the way to train, this wasn't the way to uh, play a game. Sure, but um, and that and that came from obviously some of the recruits that came in just. Um, some fell by the wayside, and other others just hated it, and still hate it to this day when they talk about it. But they actually became really important people within the within the squad and the team. And again, Lewis ended up uh, bringing Ross McClamman, who which was probably one of the biggest signings when we went into um, what is the championship. You know that second level, um, and suddenly we we. We had one or two people who, again, were better than better than what we were before, you know, and 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 that's that's obviously causes other people to, but there was a toughness about the group all the time. That there, there wasn't too many, there wasn't too many people came in and, and were just a technical player. There was uh, they were technical, tough, and they had some sort of physicality, whether it would be pace, or whether it was just a pure endurance. Yeah. And um, listen, we, we all there was enough squabbles between all the squads that you'd say it was all about team spirit and everybody got on. Not everybody got on in, within the dressing room, yeah. and there was one or two little little fights and altercations as you would normally have. But at the end point, 
we fought and ran hard for one another when it came to the games. And um, the other thing that probably helped us towards that was little bits of success in the league cups and Simod cups oh. as as we progressed <laughs> through the bottom two leagues. But four 0 against Chelsea, no biggie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All that gives you some sort of belief. It must do. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, the Simmons the Cup now would be sort of looked at with like a a bit of an eye roll. But you know, we beat Norwich, who were who were a major hitter. Then Derby County, Chelsea. You know, and sort of, it's funny mm. that we got knocked out to Luton Town, but they were kind of specialists at that sort of thing at that time in history, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. And um, and it was uh, the AstroTurf pitch as well. Yeah. For that final one, yeah. What, what was playing like on those AstroTurf pitches like in comparison to to just normal pitches? Because they're notorious now. I think it was Oldham, Luton, and QPR, wasn't it? That that had them. Yeah, um, it's probably another thing that Lou did. He used to take us. So if if a week was free, and we used to go, we'd get on the bus and we'd go and play QPR on the on the AstroTurf, or we'd go and play. Somewhere I'm trying to think where we went, Weymouth. But we used to go down to see play a game, and then some of the some of the boys that uh, hadn't played, they would play. So I call them reserves if you want. But the rest of us had to run around the pitch, and if anyone got a knock, then we went and stood in the sea for twenty minutes, all that mm-hmm. type of thing. And there was numerous days that he, was, he would say that it's, it's not a day off tomorrow. Uh, everyone here, we're going to play such and such, and we head off and play. Um, Yeovil. I remember going to Yeovil in a night game for absolutely no reason at all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just, just added him. And um, I mean, as captain, I used to get sent in and say, well, why are we doing that? Do we need to go? And like, Lou, Lou's very good. I mean, he, he, he really, really sort of put me under, not, not under his wing as such, but I was his first port of call on a Saturday night. He would ring me up, and in reality, he's ringing up to see who was out. And he would ring up, if we, especially if we'd lost the game, he would ring up and, and ask, where are you? And I was saying, I'm sat at home. He said, right. And I was round his house two or three times on a Saturday night. Mm. And um, he said, where do you think he is? That's not right that he's out. He's out having beer and all this type of stuff. And he's, get, he's getting into me about my teammates. <laughs> and... But that was just a, a little bit. I was indoctrinated that, you know, I didn't. I, I did drink, but I didn't drink anywhere near like um, I probably could have. And I realised, as certainly as you go up the leagues, and certainly in modern day football, you know that that sort of lifestyle is 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 really the way to be. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think now, especially with social media and so forth, I think back in the day, again, I can only go with my dad's sort of memories, but my dad will swear blind that he saw an ex-Swindon forward called Arthur Horsfield put out a cigarette as he was just running out and things like that. And now because of social media, I think there's more outrage, especially when teams are struggling, that they're out and about on a on a on a Saturday night, aren't they? And it, it, it's a fine balance when when you are when you're athletes. No, that, that that's right, and you know, I, I, listen, just just because you uh, you may be out and you have a drink, and and obviously as as we matured, we ended up 
getting married and having kids. So your lifestyle definitely changed from a single person to a, um, having a, having a wife and having children and and having a house. That was another thing that Lou was dead against. That he, he didn't want. He said, "Why would you want to buy a house? You pay too much money for it." And at the time, house prices in Swindon were sort of, you know, going up rapidly. You know, yeah. up doubling within six months at, at one stage. And he, he wouldn't, he, he didn't want to give you any more money for, because you wanted to put a deposit on a house or buy a washing machine. Mm. Have you heard the Peter Coin story? No, I haven't. Peter Coin went in and asked for a, for a rise. And he said, what, what do you want a rise for? He said, well, I've just had um, just had the second baby and um, we need to get some furniture for the, the kid's room. So he, he, within a week, um, this trailer went down his road with two pine wardrobes from the chairman. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't get his rise, but he got his furniture. <laughs> Got to keep your cards firmly to your chest when it comes to those sort of requests. That that season, before we move on to the next one, because I do appreciate we've got so much to talk about, was that was the first season pretty much in your career where you had an injury that took you out for for a fair bit, wasn't it? So... How, how what was that like watching sort of that you're at the highest level that you've played so far and you're missing I think you in the league you missed well over 10 games didn't you so it, 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 what's that like for a pro when when yeah no I mean it was I mean, I'd, I'd such I'd had such a good run of games being uh not missing a game um it, it, it was quite listen it's only from a selfish point of view I, th- I thought that Nobody, nobody likes being out out the team, mm. um, but it also gives gives you a little bit of chance to sort of take a breath, reflect, watch from a watch from a different viewpoint, not be in the pressure cooker of the game sometimes. And somehow, also gives you <laughs> at some point you've got to let your body recover from. I, mean, I think I'd been sort of two, three, three seasons without missing any game at all. Mm. So. In some ways, it, it might have helped me. Kerr plays it back in again, and no offside! And Taylor has scored! And that surely means it's the Premier League for Swindon Town now! Well, the following season, you're back to your freakish nature of playing pretty much every game. I think you only miss um, a few games that year. And it's kind of like I look at it as somebody who started supporting Swindon after this season is a bit of a heartbreaker really because we're kind of nowhere near promotion candidates for a lot of that season and then we are the momentum team at the end but unfortunately you have to go up against the right and bright strike partnership who really do just down us that that in those playoffs don't they yeah i mean it was as big as the other games were in winning promotion, whether it be the Chester home game or Mansfield away game in, in Division Four or Wigan and, and Gillingham, that's the the first that that's the game that I really remember. This is sort of getting close to really high profile stuff. Mm. Probably one because of the reputation of Brighton, right, uh, and it being Crystal Palace, and. Listen, we played. We played very well in the first game. A real, real tough game. Really tough game, and deserved. I think we deserved to have uh, the lead in the game. And when we went, when we went there, we we just got um, 
we get knocked about a bit, but, but them two really played well that night. Mm. The other thing that happened, Steve Foley was carrying a knock, and as we trained at Bisham Abbey in the morning of the game, there was no there was no way Steve was fit to play. And we we did this, we do this sort of circle drill where you pass it and you follow. Mm. And everyone just kept passing it to him so that to highlight that he couldn't run. But he ended up uh, he, he started the game, which was we kinda I thought there's no way he can he can't play, he can't run. But he was tough, tough old boy. And he strapped himself up and went out there, but we were uh, we get sort of washed away with the emotion that probably we had against Gillingham in the that second leg. Mm-hmm. To come back. They they had an appetite for the game and they just they just in the end their better players were, were too good for us. Steve Foley, anyone from that era, Steve Foley, Steve Foley was playing when when I when I started going, and he was a, a very very good footballer. He was Player of the Year that the season that we're talking about right now, a season that contains champions Chelsea, second place. Man City, third place, Crystal Palace. You know, this is this is a competitive, you know, yes, it's second tier, but th- these were massive teams back then. Sorry, um, Crystal Palace went up in the playoffs, they didn't finish third. But um, Steve Foley is, is, is a funny one because we hear a lot of stuff about what happened after and we're not sure, but he was a hell of a footballer, but a bit of a character as well. Yeah, no, he was a um, f- funny boy, <laughs> very funny boy. And, um, you know, another thing that sort of the... The togetherness of the group was that whenever we were away games, I used to travel with your sort of um, suit carrier for the away game. Put a suit on, and you put your tracksuit in on the Saturday. Put put in travel bike. When we get back, used to meet the wives and girlfriends and in a bar in town, and we used to walk in and be able to leave like anything from six to a dozen suit carriers at the door next to this this bar. And all the wives would be in there together already, you know. There was that sort of uh, harmony within the group, and the, and um, is it Rudy's wine bar? I don't know if it's even still there. Don't know. You you probably don't know, don't know. but at the top of town, and and the, almost the bus used to drop us off there. We get off and go in and get welcomed in. It was um, you just thought we were famous. <laughs> <laughs> this <laughs> this season is also. Really, when I was talking earlier, I was talking about Makari's transition, and this is the end of the Makari era, but what he left, David Kerslake aside, is pretty much everyone for the following season, which is, of course, uh, Digby, Hockaday, Bowden, Jones, yourself, the late, great John Gittins, Steve Foley, White, McLaughlin, McLaren, and um, and Foley as well. So, you know, Makari leaves, that's a huge disappointment, I'm sure, but my goodness, he left the squad. He did, and and then the um, the great bit about when Ozzy came in, it was a complete change of style, which was um, sort of really refreshed everyone. Mm. Um, and and you know, he gave he, he gave everyone the, the confidence that Lou probably didn't he he didn't give you the confidence to be able to play in that way, but it, it got you drilled and got the team really committed and fit, etc., etc. So, but Ozzy. Ozzy was helped undoubtedly by the group of people and the toughness and the there was a there was still a hard running team within his more expansive style of play. Um 
and I'm sure, listen, we, we surprised ourselves, never mind anybody else in, in terms of the football that we started to play that year. Mm. So when, when McCurry does decide to go to West Ham, was the feeling, more was was it upset or is it instantly like, okay, we've got Aussie Ardiles here, let's, let's see mm. what he's got to say, because that is... That's a World Cup winner coming to Swindon Town. That's that's ridiculous. Yeah, man. I, 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 it's, I can remember when they announced it, and um, I'm sure um, I'm sure my wife. Um, I think she asked her mum who was who'd get the job, and she said Ozzy Ardiles. And I'm sure I said no. She's obviously got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and and lo, lo and behold, she hadn't. So. Um, Listen, that was great. It was a great lift for everybody, you know. It was, and and no one expected it to be uh, the way it went because it just, it, it we went to a, another level with a different style, didn't we? Yeah. Um, and and suddenly we weren't only um, favourites, Swindon Town uh, fans' favourites. We were favourites of lots of other people around the country for the the style that he, he made his play in. Yeah, which 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 era did you did you prefer to play under? And we'll get to Glenn in a little while. But were were you more comfortable in Ardiles's setup than you were Makari's, or were you happier in the Makari setup? Um, I I was probably more comfortable in the loose setup, mm. the, probably less risk and less um, less ownership of doing something, but. You know, it was certainly a, certainly more more enjoyable, and you get people thought you were a better player than you were. The two styles, Aussie style, made people think you were a better player than what they thought you were under Lou, which um, is always a good thing to remember when you're coaching and you're looking at teams. If if people can deliver a ball from back to front, keep dropping it in a spot, yeah, then i.e. the Cambridge team and the Wimbledon team, all those players were good players because of their accuracy of pass and their um, game knowledge and the way they were able to play the game and be good at set plays, etc., etc. It's, it, it's quite a, it's quite an awkward question without, you know, it's safer to play under Lou. Sure. But as to develop as a player and for me probably to get to, uh, or for us to play, consistently better at, at the next level I think Aussies was the way mm. Listen, he was ahead of his time I mean people now are waxing lyrical about pressing the ball and and uh, playing with somebody behind two strikers and all this type of thing yeah. and nobody else was doing it yeah and this is um, I should ask what was your working relationship like with with Aussie yeah but very good, I many very, very good. You know, he was just—he he was one of them. He gave—he sort of—he um, was able to give people a self-belief and a confidence. And you know, his mantra was: "You, you get the ball, you play, you pass the ball, pass the ball, you play, you play, play, play all the time, play. <laughs> no problem, no problem, no problem." And he was very relaxed during the week, very relaxed on a Saturday. Um, can remember. Any tellings off or too many tellings off, but that's where that was the benefit of what he inherited. There was we had more arguments between ourselves as players 
about rights and wrongs and attitude to training and working, running in games. They even even never had to tell anyone to do that because we we used to fight like cat and dog and bark at one another at half time in during games. Mm. Um, myself and Ross McLaren and, and people like that. I mean, Steve Foley, our the sort of it wasn't. We weren't just tapping each other on the backside and saying, "Well played." We used to get used to get into one another quite a bit. Yeah. And Aussie used to have to calm us down. <laughs> Lots of occasions. I think one thing that I know it's about Ozzy Adidas's era is, and I might be completely wrong here because of generational things, because I miss them. But he seems to utilise the youth system a little bit more. So you've got people like Fitzroy Simpson, Nicky Summerby, Paul Hunt mm. coming through. You don't really see that during the Lou Macari era, do you? Um, no, but I think. I th- I, I, um... You know, I I was young, so I was twenty twenty one when I first joined. Charlie Henry was still fairly young. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, Alan McLaughlin was there with Lou as well. He brought him in, and Fraser Digby brought in. He played him in League One as a young goalie, and and Ken, when Kenny Allen left. Yeah, you know, so that it, it maybe didn't come through the youth team at that time. But he was finding um, them. Mm. Yeah, 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 he found them, the yeah. two boys, Alan and Fraser from Man United. Hmm. Um, Phil King would have been fairly young as well, you know, when he yeah. first came in. Yeah, fair point. No, um, no, no arguments with that at all. Did you ever think when he was sort of training with you as as a as a teenager that you'd be uh, working alongside Paul Trollope quite often in the future? No, no. <laughs> um, but the way his dad was he, and. You know, he he went away and earned himself a great career by by leaving. You know, he did. Yeah. He did terrific, and the you know the uh, the way that Swindon went up probably hampered Paul playing for his hometown club. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, and if we if we'd been a league, a league four club, Division four, a League two club, and and not had that sort of rapid two steps up, absolutely no doubt he would have played for Swindon Town. Yeah, there, there were about four or five players from that generation yeah. that, that, that definitely would have played had we been, even in um, the championship for an extra season, they would have they would have yeah. made it at, at Swindon. Completely agree with you there. Well, let's, let's, let's continue with 89-90 because it's ahead of a season. But first, you score from the halfway line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was against them. Funnily enough, we'd been to... Uh... Aussie had taken us away. We'd been to Spain in the uh, after the previous Saturday's game, and we'd had the uh, sort of golf and a couple of couple of nights out. And it, it was, and we came back. We played the game. I think we were three up at half time, and which was just as well because we couldn't raise our legs in the second half, if I'm honest. Mm. And you know, I, I I can still. It was fairly blustery day, and there was a free kick. And Paul Bodenang had his hand in the ball, and I, I just, I just spotted the, the, the goalie was quite a long way. And I thought, I'm going to lar up this, so gave him a shout to get out of the road and ran up and gave it a whack. And <laughs> lo and behold, the wind took it and it flew in. <laughs> yeah. I'd be dining out on that for years if it was me. I tell you. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Um, but I mean, there's. Uh, 
I think if there was a goal, I remember it was um, a goal in sort of uh, there was one against Exeter where I've I've been, uh, the balls come out and I've been at the back and I've I've lifted it over the defence coming out and against Exeter in Division Four and then something a little bit similar at Notts County in the in the next season. I remember them more a little bit because I've sort of lifted it over. Uh, a defence rushing out and been able to hit it on sort of some sort of half volley or something. Um, they're the goals that I think were um, were better actually. I would say the one in ninety two ninety three against Newcastle, which uh, from the corner. Oh right, that, yeah, <laughs> that that thirty yarder. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm pretty sure they thought hit your hand. Is that is that? Yeah, yeah, I remember <laughs> that. I, mean, I, so I, I came off round about me wrist on me. Hip and what have you? That that, that was a real that was a real Ooh, game. That yeah, was, some, was a proper game. And we'll get to that season in a bit, but we need Paul Bowden from the spot for Swindon. He scored. You're listening to the Low Strangers podcast, proudly sponsored by the STFC official supporters club. We do need to talk about our greatest moment of that era, that and it was just, and what happened next. So when I spoke to Paul Bowden about this, I went quite what I thought was quite linear. Like you, you finished the season, you played a final, yeah. and you were demoted. But yeah. he was t- talking to me about the fact that in the build-up, obviously, because I, I don't remember this. I'm too young to remember the ins and outs, and frankly, I'm glad I don't remember this because it would have ruined me for years but but there was those reassurances so it go it's in the news there are reassurances that whatever happens the winner will go up it sounds like Sunderland were told that whatever happens Swindon are probably going to get demoted that's something that he heard um, on the grapevine whether that's true or not we don't know but ultimately it doesn't stop it doesn't stop the fact that it's one of the most convincing 1-0 wins at Wembley that mm. anyone will ever have. And it, it's such a shame that such an amazing achievement for the club, for Ozzy Adilis and for the 11 players that played that day, it was just so cruelly denied. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Listen, we knew we knew there were problems before, but sort of prior to that, we'd, um, when I ended up, we went down and opened some floodlights down in Cornwall somewhere. And that... Uh, that was on the uh, we played on the Monday night to open these floodlights, and then on the Tuesday morning the police came and knocked. Ozzy was at the door with the policeman, and I got I got arrested and taken to well I got taken to Bristol Police Station, signed in. Then we left there and went back to the house in Swindon because they wanted to. They had um, the right to go and have a look through. And see if there was any evidence there. So, um, and and this was all on the back of people turning up at the players' houses on occasions, mm-hmm. saying they were in on revenue and wanting to ask questions. And and we'd sort of been advised by the PFA to, to uh, just say nothing and don't let them in. So they, they sort of forced the issue and they made the arrests of myself and Lou, Brian Hillier and and Vince Farrar, and and that then led to everyone else when they get back from Cornwall giving statements. Um so that that was I must admit that was 
that was an interesting day. It was a long day, and um, you know we, we'd been, which was the way that had had gone on for a while. We'd when we were getting a little bit extra bonus for cup games or runs of games we lose that would give us um, if we didn't if we didn't lose if we took seven points from nine out of three games he said there, there might be a uh, hundred quid or fifty quid between you or, or each all that type of thing mm-hmm. and that was the type of thing they found in my house I had a couple of lists back of envelope with the squad and the players who'd played in a set of games and it would be eighty pound for all overs are fifty pounds, so that accumulated over the number of years, and, and they, they were the things that we ended up getting demoted for. Hmm. Did Did you know it was against the rules, or was it? Were you sort of none the wiser? Um. Well, we knew we knew there was a bonus sheet, but we knew there was a lot. Listen, the understanding was that lots of teams get paid that way, of course. You know, and yeah. And and, that's true. That's that's a fact, isn't it? That's... The, yeah. So we didn't think it, it was it was any different. It was just a it, it was just the another way of doing it. So it was the thing is our the total amount of our money was nowhere near one occasion off Chelsea yeah. paid one player. Yeah. I think it, it's still one of the biggest injustices of uh, football. You know, I mean, they were they the they were making decisions which were uh, we were getting told what or we heard and referred afterwards. It didn't matter if we won the playoffs. Um, if we got through, obviously the Blackburn chairman was quite high up in the EFL mm. at the time and all this type of thing. But you know what? We were also told as we went the final. If um, no, it's a, it's a fair game. If you win it, you're up. Yeah. I think I think that's the issue for me. The fact that they made you play the game, I, you know. I mean, rules are rules, punishments are punishments. But to be aware of of the evidence that they had, and to make Swindon fans go to Wembley, to make players go and and fight for a place in the first division. It just it's just daft it was beyond daft and we know the football uh, association especially back then were, were prone to those sort of um, decisions but I mean I, I've seen the footage of Jimmy Greaves with the Swindon are innocent and things like that and I, I think that's based on the fact that you know Greaves know, knew the industry that this was something that was part of puzzle I mean a lot of the things that Swindon Town fans say is they were made an example of um, which which is remarkable, but I, I I sort of lean to the conspiracy theory that there there were people with interests with other clubs elsewhere that, that benefited from it from the, in the long term. Yeah, no, I, definitely. I don't think um, it's now. I, and and the time that we actually win that promotion, none of that money was getting paid in that way. Mm. But that's the problem. Yeah. So the the team's been punished for what happened, even though. Listen, I was there and I benefited from win bonuses and a signing on fee. Mm. But um, that that none of that was happening. Yeah. Well, certainly, none of that was happening um, through that season that we actually went up. Yeah. So we've been punished for something that happened uh, the previous year and previous year before that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, mm. which is makes it even worse for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. And thank you for sort of 
talking your way through that so candidly because you know it's a difficult it's a difficult period it's it's a difficult thing to talk about but what what is so reassuring for me is that you know that squad is still hugely you know fondly remembered in such a significant way i mean that back four is the stuff of you know there are going to be people listening to this who's Back four, that's the dream team. Kerslake, Bowden, Calderwood, Gittins. You know, Gittins, who we lost in 2019, his legacy is weirdly sort of been overshadowed uh, overshadowed because Sean Taylor replaced him. But John was, he's the first centre-half pairing him. And of course, because when I started going, AD Vivash was covering you and so was Nesta Lorenzo. Um, but yourself and Gittins, that's the first centre-back partnership I had and he was an absolute force. <laughs> he was, uh, yeah, he was, um, he was quite good athleticism yeah. as well, with good spring, you know. Absolutely. Um, yeah, he, was, he was a good guy. Yeah. yeah. We had no idea where the ball was going sometimes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think the following season... We'll talk about a happier Wembley experience uh, later, but do you think the following season, it's a bad one for you because you get injured, um, but do you think that was a real hangover from, from the from the summer before? Yeah, I, th- I think um, definitely. And, and obviously we lost a couple of players. Mm. Um, and, and losing a couple... Of, and I think it's probably... It's not... Probably not so much physically because I think we won the first game, didn't we? Started the season with an away victory at where would it be? Fulham, Charlton, something like that. We went mm. somewhere and won, and um, but then it just became uh, probably a, a wee bit of that emotional talk at some point. You know, when you really got to keep going in a season and digging, there's a long way to go, and it's the dark nights. You go through the dark nights and the yellow balls are as they are now mm. and we just we didn't have that we didn't have that mojo that we'd had for all the other years where we've been very competitive we weren't at, we weren't at that age of being competitive and, and at it for every game so there must have been some sort of feeling sorry for ourselves etc etc mm. I mean Aussie doesn't finish the season but when you think that you know what had happened the summer before was before his tenure it must have been tremendously frustrating for him because in his on his you know in his first season as a manager which would span many many years he almost took this little club from Wiltshire to the top flight and it was denied mm. and you know you could have you could have understood if he walked that summer couldn't you but you know he gave it a good go and but it just it must have been hell of a frustrating for him yeah, I think so. And, you know, when it, when I sit down now and look back, the the frustration for me is that side was capable of doing well because it wasn't it wasn't the league that it became two, three years later. And we, I think we'd have been able to uh, compete in a different way in the next level mm. with that group of players. Yeah, that's, that's my usual question. Would Town have stayed up? With that squad in Division One, and and the answer is, you know, it's all hypothetical, but probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think if if you look at where um, the majority of that team ended up playing, um, further down the line, yeah, and at a different level, I think we would have adapted, and obviously the um, 
Ozzy being in charge, it would have helped. We'd have been on the roll, wouldn't we? Yeah. Everything would 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 still be on marching forward, really, in some way. And so. you can see it with any of the teams that go go up. They they have um, the majority of them seem to do okay when they go up because they're used to um, competing, winning. They've got that little bit of inner strength. Can handle adversity a wee bit because no season you don't always score first in the game, etc., etc. You know they've got something that helps them get going. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That that season. So 1991, That's the season where I go to my first game, and of course it's a worst season in several years, which is a running theme in my time supporting Swindon Town. Yeah. But one thing that Aussie did give us, and that was the delight. That was Nesta Lorenzo, uh, his, yeah. his his parting gift before he went up to Newcastle. Um, I just spoke to Nesta, who was an absolute gentleman. What a nice guy. Yeah, he was... I, he was a, I must admit, we were a wee bit starstruck because of what he'd done and where he'd, who he'd played for and being where he'd played for Argentina. Wow, we... I mean, it was such a... Such a coup to get somebody like that in, mm. and it, listen, that's just the. I now know that it's the association helps to bring people of who you know or you you're, you're it's only Aussie got them there. Yeah, of course. Of course, and, and we'll learn that you know only Glenn Hoddle could attract some of the the players that he brings in. And here's Foley. Far side is Bowling. Odin's cross, up in the air, Belgate punches away, comes to McLaren who hits it through a crowd of players and he's found a net. That could well be the winning goal with just three and a half minutes remaining of extra time. Ross McLaren, his third goal of the season, second in the Littlewoods Cup, through a crowd of Bolton players and into the back of the net. Glenn Hoddle comes in and this is where, you know, Swindon really do have that tradition of of bringing in these big names in their first jobs in management Dave Mackay before uh, Lou Macari Ozzy Ardiles and Glenn Hoddle so you sat there again so Ozzy's gone Ugh. and then suddenly Glenn Hoddle arrives one of the best players of his generation yeah I mean that, that was Glenn's had a big part to play in, in my career and also in my coaching because he gave me the job at Tottenham with the reserves to begin with and um I was recovering from the cruciate injury and yeah. still uh, I'd, I'd just starting to play. But in all honesty, I, I was, I, was uh, I couldn't, I couldn't flex my knee to more than um, like a, a third of what it should do. So somehow I get through that season, and it was really I'd, I had all that close season just to let the leg settle down again. And um, and Glenn had had a knee injury. So he was very, he was very supportive and and talked about we we should think about this and do this and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, he was really quite confidently talked to about it because at one stage I mean that injury was uh, may have or could have really finished my career to a certain extent. So mm. um, fortunately, the, the way it transpired, it, it didn't hold me back too much. Although I, I never had the operation to repair it. So I've played then without any cruciate ligament, which on occasions caused a bit of a problem. So 
Glenn manages to keep us up after 91 finishes. 91-92, we look like we're... Well, he brings in Sean Taylor, doesn't he? Uh, first of all, foremost, um, Mickey Hazard's already brought in. Um, again, another only sort of Aussie could bring in someone like Mickey Hazard. But in comes Sean Taylor, who, like yourself, he becomes an absolute Swindon legend. Um, <laughs> just... Oh. What a great! I mean, he'd done so well at Exeter. He'd won the league with Exeter City the season before, so it wasn't like you know a, one of these sort of uh, shock signings. You, anyone that had an interest in the football league would have known that Sean Taylor was was much sought after. But just about those pieces in the jigsaw, and he would become so crucial to Swindon. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. I can remember John and Glenn and uh, talking about it a bit, having a. An aerial do- dominant centre half who can, who would be good in both boxes and contest the first ball in the, in in a better way than we probably were doing, and um, that was and then Glenn obviously playing between myself and and uh, Sean, so it was um, it was real education that first and foremost, but then all the all the little tactical stuff that we started to work on and he would talk about and all the things that people think are brand new. Glenn was Glenn was doing it and highlighting it and talking about it way back then with us at Swindon, you know, it was a real education, always has been whenever you talk to, to Glenn about football. But they they just um he sort of he he enhanced the style that we played. Obviously, changed formation, um, but we probably we we worked a little bit more on phases of play or set plays than we probably did with Aussie. Mm. And he was just he just put another layer onto what was a good um, a good football team. And 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 similarly, that I think you know when we talk about. Um, Aussie, he just put another layer, a different style, or another layer onto the group of players that were there. Yeah. And Glenn just he he did that to uh, the next degree. Yeah. And and also, you know, having John Mulcair and Mickey Hazard been able in your midfield, then you had two real comfortable ball players who added something else to you as well. Yeah. We haven't even talked about Duncan Shearer yet. Well, this is this is the season. Ninety one, ninety two is the year of Duncan Shearer. I have read his book. He's he's quite a character. This, I mean, we'll talk about Duncan as as a player and the person first and foremost. But I will end that statement with the biggest farce of of, of Swindon in the nineties is Blackburn buying him just to prevent Swindon from from being a yeah. threat that season. Absolutely blatant and remarkable. I know it was. Um, it was the first year of Blackburn bought, wasn't it? Yep, it was. And um, it was a shame. Like, me and Duncan were pretty close. The families, two families, were very close as well. So um, it was a f- funny, funny boy. <laughs> Didn't take a suntan too well, <laughs> but uh, a real, real, real character. Very, very dry sense of humour. Uh, and uh, he's got a cutting tongue as well, so he's, he's good entertainment whenever you talk to him. But uh, it's, it's getting you, it's getting him to talk to you in the first place <laughs> is the problem. Um, and um, him, him and Steve White used to used to argue like 
uh, over everything about who scored a goal and who was top goal scorer. And <laughs> Steve White claimed the goal against Blackburn in the playoff game. But, um, it was definitely an own goal, but Steve White claimed it touched his shot on the way by, and that that made him equal top goal scorer. I think that yeah. <laughs> I, I don't blame him because I think the two times that that Steve White is top scorer, he shares that accolade with um, Duncan Shearer and one other, and might be Bamba. So I, I don't blame him. He, he must have been desperate to take the spoils on his own at least one season, but it wasn't meant to be because uh, Duncan was unstoppable uh, up until he left, wasn't he? Yeah, no, he he was um, he was very very good. Any cross in the box and a head at goal, he was excellent. Any goalkeeper's kick and he was going for the first contact to flick it on. He was terrible, but he had a thunderbolt left and right foot, and he had it really interesting. If you ever ever watch some of the goals back, he had uh, he had the knowledge when he went down the side of side of the box to put the style across in that he knew forwards wanted. So sort of low and hard, flat across the goal. And the number of times he would be sort of sliding in for almost, I mean, almost looked like tapping goals. But, you know, he also serviced his partner well in lots of occasions. Mm. Um, and it, for someone who was could be so strong in the air, it used to drive used to drive me mad that we'd never win the ball when Fraser kicked at her. You know, he would... He'd put his the old tattle neck would come out, but if you put it on across for a for a goal, he'd go and knock most people over and put his head in where it hurt. What was it like for the rest of the squad when when he got sold? Can you remember? Like, was it like, well, you know, for goodness' sake, um, because you know Swindon have never been a team or a club um, that have had much money. So when a, when Walker Cash arrives, we're not in a position to just turn it down. And even then, the spoils of the top flight, this is just before the Premier League, so there's not huge riches in the first division um, back then. So it must have been tremendously disappointing in that respect to lose the talisman um, so close to the end of the season as well. Yeah, I mean, we were obviously hoping he didn't go, but I remember it had just been from, you know, when it becomes a sort of friendship, it, it's it became such a a good deal for him, you know, to I mean change change lots of things about how he could financially for him, and, and it just uh, it became how how would you feel if that opportunity turned down for you as well? That sure. the club the club had to take it, and they did it deliberately, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Well, well, let's move to 92-93 and I rub my hands together because oh, what a season this was. Um, I've just, oh, I wish I could, I, I could do a whole episode on 92-93 and one day I probably will. Um, but it, it's just, we've got now Maskell and Mitchell up front, uh, Maskell coming in for this season. You've got a fit by the end, John Moncur as well. Brian Marwood comes in near to the end of the season, scores that goal against Bristol City. Um, Kurz Lake is one of the best players. Well, he's the best right back in, in the low leagues for two or three seasons. And then he goes, but it doesn't matter because Nicky Summerby comes in. It's it's just, it just everything seems to click for Swindon that season, despite obstacles that they face throughout. It's just just a wonderful season. Yeah, no, it was a good season, and, and, and if I'm honest, I, I think we should have done better. Mm-hmm. I think we should have probably contested the automatic and uh, closer. 
or gone closer to it. So, but we had some wonderful performances, you know, and um, it, it was obviously, um, I don't know if you remember the Peterborough game away on a Sunday afternoon and it ended up 3 all. but we played some of the best football in the worst pitch you would ever <laughs> imagine. And I think the goal that Mickey Hazard scored was is, is still one of the best goals I've, I've been involved in, even though I never touched the ball. It was just... Uh, and then uh, Nicky Armand made a couple of mistakes. I think he kicked it straight to Tony Adcock. But there was, there was too many games like that where we've, the quality of our football didn't didn't give us uh, enough wins to, to really try and go close to the top two. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Newcastle under Kevin Keegan that year, um, they, they are... Ahead, I mean, they don't beat us, obviously, but they're a, um, they're ahead of a head of a force, and it's just I've got so many great memories. I mean, this is the season that I remember more than any. I think in my childhood, this is you know I've been it's two or three years since my first game, but this is the one that really really kicks in, and there's just so much going for it. And we played such good football, and it was almost bookended by those two Glenn Hoddle goals, wasn't it? And he he sort of set the tone and. I've I've said this several times to both you know just uh, fans on the pod and and uh, and players that Glenn Hoddle is the first player I saw where I recognised that he was world class even if he wasn't he was on the downward sort of spiral not downward but even if he wasn't as good as he was in the eighties you could see it he was just he just orchestrated that side oh no it was, and it was. Um... Where, where it's tactically good. Teams then, because we played three at the back and teams would, uh, whatever formation, normally two up front, but they, eventually they came and they would play one up front mm. um, and try and leave three defenders against their one striker and, and they would mark mark the wing backs in whichever way they wanted to try and do it. So, um, But what, what he used to say is that whenever that happened, he used to go, and it, it was it was the worst thing they ever did because me and Sean would have to look after the one striker, and he would go and play in midfield. He'd just go and play anywhere. He'd become free. <laughs> so suddenly, the guy who was centre half was now popping up all over the pitch, and it, Watford under Peter Taylor were one of the first teams to come and try and do that with Steve Perryman. Yeah, and um, he said, right, um, used to look after him. I'm going to play elsewhere. And he, he went and just orchestrated the game from higher up the pitch. Mm. Well, a couple of a couple of games of note, of course. I mean, from a from a defensive point of view, the six four at Birmingham, um, you can't be you know overly overjoyed with that. But again, I remember looking at that result because I wasn't there. I'm not I'm not one of the uh, the fifty thousand people that claim to have been at that game. I was <laughs> I was in Catrick Garrison that day, but I remember I remember just processing it, looking at the half time score, looking at the full time score, looking at the minutes the goals were scored, and just thinking. This isn't football. This is crazy. Yeah, I know it was a, it was a, an amazing, amazing afternoon because it was when the Birmingham scored some good goals oh, against, yeah. and and it was, it was it was one of them games where the other team has probably six attacks and they ended up scoring four goals. Yeah, or it felt that way, and and then we were obviously beat and out of it, and then somehow. Um, we just kept every time we attacked. At the end, it was every attack we seemed to score, and they just um, they went into a wee bit of a shock. 
but it was it was one of them results that really helped us galvanize galvanize us towards the end of the season a little bit and again the ability to come from behind is, is something that you need in any team that wins promotion. Yeah. And they come from so far behind, never be dead. So, um, And somehow, somehow I think that that helped when it got to the final, when we were three up and then it's three all. Yeah. You know, so we hadn't, we had, we'd had adversity and you need, you need to have had that. If that had happened in the, if we hadn't had one or two occasions of, been right behind the the black ball in lots of occasions, four one down away from home and win. Um to lose a three nothing lead in the final would be um you know, you you'd be beat, wouldn't you? Yeah. I think. Yeah. And it, it I mean, let's talk about that in just a moment because because Leicester Leicester, we had two feisty, fiery games against them in, in the league. You got sent off at Filbert Street. Uh, Julian Jochen was sent off in the in the, in the the game at the county ground nearer to the end of the season. Um, I think Town and Leicester finished on the same amount of points at the end of the season. It was a good old-fashioned red versus blue at Wembley. Uh, what are your memories of that game from the prep all the way to the celebrations? I think the experience of the Sunderland game definitely definitely helped me, mm. um, and 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 really been uh, I felt really ready for the game. I must admit, and I felt that the team was ready. And again, the, the difference to begin with was was definitely the manager and what he did with the opening goal. You know, the game was the game was. I mean, he, he put something in the game that was just total another level up from the standard of game that it was and it was a good football game. Yeah. But that, that opening goal really settled us down and then the way that the the obviously the second half opens up and it's you know, it's it's almost the perfect the perfect way to get promotion. Yeah. But in reality the perfect way is to be in real danger. Lose a lead and then and then get it back like the way we did. I mean that just makes it. I'm I'm amazed that game doesn't get on the television as playoff highlight games. They probably don't have the rights or something. That can be the only reason because that's that's as good as any playoff final. That. I think the Charlton Sunderland game sort of dwarfed it because there were a couple more goals, but the sheer sort of three 0 up cruising and then just those 10-15 minutes where Leicester just get their second wind and I remember your reaction when they equalise and you sort of your arm sort of waving around sort of livid and like you're quite right when you say that's where Leicester win you know that that is in 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 normal circumstances we're on the ropes we're just about to fall referee's going to call call it because Swindon are done but for whatever reason you know you know people will tell me a blatant penalty on Steve White um, um and just the stones on Paul Bowden as well just to calmly put that penalty away and it, it it's so vivid in my mind that that day it's 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 such such a such an important day for Swindon fans of that generation because of what happened three years before. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it wasn't only the joy of um, winning that game. It was it was the relief and I think a bit of payback. I felt it was payback for not being allowed to go up the last time. Yeah. You know, and um, 
it was such a relief and still still the best journey home from a game I've ever had back along the M4 and and the M4 getting stopped because the, the cars are stopping in the road and the police having to take us in from <laughs> from the junction and all the way down the ground and sitting on top of the bus out the uh, out the sky roofs and what have you absolutely fantastic ended up over at the hotel for like a meal with the families and what have you mm. yeah beautiful great memories but before we go to the sad conclusion, did you like the fact that you were being filmed throughout the whole season with the documentary? Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, I didn't mind it actually mm. because it, 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 it wasn't intrusive at all. You know, he was there. He always became part of part of the group a little bit. Whenever he came in, he was he was a nice guy actually, and it, it just. It's it's brought great memories actually. It's a great yeah. documentary when I look back now, and it's so earthy on lots of occasions, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's on YouTube. It's 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 completely watchable still today. Um, about just how football works and operates, and what footballers are thinking in ninety two, ninety three as well. It's not about like you know at the end of the day we hope that we'll get a win. It's they're talking like people like Martin Ling in that episode. You can see that that they're being as honest as they absolutely can be, and even Eddie Murray's on there as well, and he he talks so well about like being a local boy playing for his local club and trying to make his way. And you've got John Trollope talking um, as frankly about footballers these days. And then you've got the great Eddie Buckley and Kevin Morris being characters as well. So it's it's, it's a wonderful bit of history in, in an hour sort of uh, documentary. Yeah. And and, and he, he made it, trying to make it like a hard-hitting uh, yeah. hard version of football, which he'd done on a, uh, a couple of boxers, I think. And in the end... I think he says that in his documentary, you know, it ended up being, it was a Roy the Rover story in the end, wasn't it? Yeah. Pick somebody out. Far post for Shearer. Goal! Yes! Wonderful goal all the way from the moment that Hazard picked him out. So why did you leave? <laughs> oh. It, well, listen, it, it became, Glenn obviously went to Chelsea mm-hmm. and uh, Ozzy, as luck would have it for me, Ozzy ended up at Tottenham. So I had the opportunity and, you know, if I'm honest, there was so much of me would would like to have stayed, but I, I didn't think, I didn't think I would get the opportunity to go to Tottenham again. Mm. There had been an approach a couple of years before, yeah, but it was via an agent and yeah, I would have had to sign with an agent and, that might have got me the move to Tottenham, and I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel comfortable with it at all. Yeah. Um, and it, it just listen, it became it became the right thing for me, and uh, it, it was obviously a pretty selfish thing to do, but it's um, I didn't want to miss out on the chance of the, that opportunity, especially we always been there. If it'd been someone else, it might have been different. Yeah. But then Glenn had the chance to go with Glenn to Chelsea, and I ended up choosing Tottenham. Yeah, um, it, it's kind of one of these funny things because you're with Town for eight years, but when you leave, you're only what twenty eight. So you, you're in your sort of prime years. So mm. I mean, it's I'm trying to sort of justify it on your behalf here. But if if I'm at that stage of my career, I'm thinking I've started with a middle table, mid table Division Four team, and I'm leaving them 
moving into the new era of the Premier League or the second season of the Premier mm. League, that, that is closure, isn't it? And Tottenham Hotspur, regardless of how good they were then, I mean, it's only three years since they won the cup final, isn't it? About 1990, mm. 91, wasn't it? 91, they won the cup, the FA yeah. Cup. So it, they're a huge, huge football team. It's not like you're moving to like a modern day Bournemouth or, or, or equivalent. You're going to one of the best supported teams in England um, and yeah. like you said that only comes about once but I still I'm still very sad about it all yeah it was, and it was there was a couple of things happened so there was a I got an offer of a new contract and was told listen just think about it and leave it to the end of the season that's what I was told um, and then when we went to the tribunal I, I suddenly found out Swindon had inquiries offers from other clubs which obviously helped enhance the fee, yeah. Um, and had been turned down because fifty percent went back to Mansfield in an over twenty-seven and a half thousand. Fifty percent would go oh, to wow. Mansfield, so there was there wasn't. If it had been four hundred thousand, then it would have been. It's a bad. It's a bad deal for Swindon just to let me go at whatever stage it was for two hundred thousand. Yeah. And um, but I didn't know any other, any of that at that time. <laughs> and the other thing that did, the other thing that, that really took the transfer fee up was um, John Sillett was on the panel and he'd been on the uh, ITV commentary team. Yeah, and watched it, lots of our games through the season. And he used to wax lyrical about the style of football we used and. Um, the players, the way Glenn's teams played, the way Glenn played, the way Sean played, um, and that that definitely. Um, so when he was in the panel and they started talking about it, he, he was waxing lyrical about games he'd been at uh, Newcastle and the Peterborough game away and all that type of stuff, mm. <laughs> and that definitely took the price up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> How did it feel coming back to the county ground and losing? Oh, it was <laughs> I'm being nasty. cruel now, aren't I? I'm yeah. being cruel. <laughs> it was nasty, and and um, a draw at White Hart Lane as well. Yeah, which I didn't enjoy at all. You know, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't feel comfortable. I must admit. It must be weird, isn't it? I mean, you've you've put your your life and your career into a small town in Wiltshire for like eight years of your life, which is you know, in the grand scheme of things, not long. But in a football career, that's the majority, and it is the majority of your career. I don't think you, I don't think all your league appearances elsewhere combined match the amount of games you play for Swindon. So just looking at them and seeing like that Swindon badge and being in the other side, it must be it must be a bit odd. Yeah, no, it was. It was very uncomfortable. I must admit, I didn't I didn't enjoy it at all. So, um, <laughs> and obviously the result wasn't wasn't good for us as well. So. No, well, it's all um, it's, it's all justified, isn't it? Because you play almost two hundred Premier League games, mostly for Tottenham, but you also have a, a, a small spell at Aston Villa as well. You you're in you you celebrate with Klinsman in your second season when he scores against Sheffield Wednesday. You do the dive celebration. Um, yeah. I could talk a long time about your career, but we simply don't have the time. What I do just want a quick segue before we go is Scotland. So one of the benefits of leaving Swindon, it's a bit criminal. You would have played for Swindon in the second tier in modern, in modern times, I think. Um, you get to represent your country 36 times. You go to their last two tournaments as well. You get beat by the English in uh, in in Euro '96. You go to the France '98 as well. Crucially, 
you are in the music video for Delamitri's Don't Come Back Too Soon, which I'm pretty sure is the curse of Scotland, because ever since that, they haven't, they've come home and not come back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what's it like, what's it like being in a music video in, in a tracksuit and football top, the most Scottish outfit ever, probably? <laughs> uh, it's, um... They were trying, they were replicating the way uh, Brazil had done it through an airport as well, mm. weren't they? And we were meant to juggle a ball, and it was obviously. Uh, <laughs> it's the saddest. It's the saddest song ever. <laughs> oh no, it's not the most excitable song. You wouldn't get you too many of you going, but you do anything for the players' pool. <laughs> it's unfortunate because you know I'm, I'm not Scottish, but my stepdad is. I've got tremendous sort of um, aff- affection for the Scots because I was raised amongst the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards through my my stepdad's job, and um, I always like to see Scotland do well. And it's it's been great. It's been a great shame that they've they've not really um, done much over the last twenty years, but you managed to get two tournaments out of them, which is all that matters as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, it was, um, that becomes, when people ask you what's, they, they talk about playing Brazil in the opening game of the World Cup as the highlight of your career, but um, I keep I keep telling everyone that the highlight is exactly what happened at Swindon, doing Division 4 through the Premier League, mm. and having to do it twice, you know, that's, that that's more rewarding, and that's the thing that um, I'm more proud of than the selfish thing about playing for your country. You know, mm. and that's just that's 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 me as an individual, and a couple of moments in time which are really really nice. But for something that really makes your life and is a real big part of your life of, through years mm. of and some and listen, it wasn't all pretty. There was a lot of hardship there as well. You had to really graft to get there. And it's because of that. That's why uh, that's that always etches out what we did with Scotland. Did you like the nickname, the fridge? Uh, yeah, I did actually. Yeah, <laughs> and um, it's it's all because Lou used to weigh every week, so um, he used to used to grab you by just above your waist and say, "Look at you, far too fat. You eat too much. You drink too much. All this type of stuff." And at the time, William Perry was. American footballer for Chicago Bears. Yep, and it, uh, that's so. Uh, Colin Gordon, Derek Hall, nicknamed me the Fridge because of that. I was just <laughs> fu- and people say it's it's because you were cool under pressure. That wasn't the real reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I could, I could, I mean, about. Four days ago, when we started this conversation, we talked about your coaching career briefly, and you've been coaching pretty much since you retired working with Tottenham Hotspur, and then getting your your own gigs at um, at Northampton Town, Nottingham Forest, later Hibs, and now with Cambridge United. There's 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 a couple of questions that I have here, but firstly, before I forget, 2008, how close were you to becoming Swindon manager? Um, quite close, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought well, so. I, I, yeah, and it, listen, it was only because, um, well, listen, it, it would have been within a matter of a week. But yeah. I, I was basically told I was going to lose my job at Forest, and then that would have been the opportunity to go in at, at Swindon's. But it was, it was hard to walk. I couldn't, I couldn't walk away from Forest. I, I had to wait until 
that decision was made, and then and in between time, they obviously went and appointed. Um, um, was it Morris? Was it Morris or was it Wilson? Uh, Morris or Danny Wilson? Maybe yeah, was it would have been Morris Malpass, I think. Mo- yeah. Morris, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, the reason why I ask is I remember somebody with contacts telling me it's going to be Colin Coldwood and I'm <laughs> I'm about 25 26 at this time and I was so excited I could not sleep that night and it never happened and I was I was devastated I, I can never decide whether legends playing legends coming back as managers is a good thing because you don't want to sort of tarnish um the the reputation but now I think it's so long ago 1993 I think I don't think it would matter either way anymore if if one day Colin Calderwood um would rock up now you're doing very well at Cambridge you've earned yourself um a new contract which in lower league in lower league um, terms is great security for you as a manager so it's going very well there I mean is Swindon ever is ever a possibility in your mind or do you think that ship has sailed um, no, I would always think it is just because of the association. I think that definitely helps. Yeah. It might give you a chance, but then it, it's the it's the timeline for the club and myself, and whether it's whether it's um, whether we're both free or, or the job's available and I'm free, all that type of thing, then leads into it a little bit. Yeah, but there's there's there would be that the heartstring pull of that. You know what I mean? But there is. You are going back with a, a if, listen. If you went anywhere, you couldn't replicate what had happened before. No. What had happened through that, that playing career? I think times have changed since then. But yeah. um, I, I'm quite confident about me, uh, my ability as a coach or a manager, and I, I really enjoy it. That's why, you know, that's why I, I took the Cambridge job because I wanted to go back to work, and I've I've found a. Um, a real good club with um, perhaps not the most money in the league, but that doesn't matter. No. Um, they're entirely, they cut the cloth entirely in the right way. And I know what the parameters are. And I think with all the other monetary troubles at other clubs that have happened, it's, it's, it's really good. I'm enjoying myself there. To close, when you close your eyes and think of Swindon Town, what are the things that immediately pop up what what the who are the faces that you can see what what are the lasting memories um it would be the old Shrevenham road stand full on um a midweek game and probably one of those cup ties Sheffield Wednesday Sunderland something like that 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 would be that would be one of the images and then the other one would probably be David Cole Colin Gordon Derek Hill, Brian Wade, um, all sat in Shrivenham Road in that those digs, wondering who's cooking dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Colin Calderwood, thank you very much. Thank you. Nice talking. The Low Strangers is proudly sponsored by the official STFC Supporters Club. The music was created by the great Matthew Kilford and the artwork was provided expertly by John Daglish. Thanks for listening. Come on, Swindon. Come on, boys.
It's a grand old team to play for. And it's a grand old team to sing. Hi, Ellis Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant, like Darren Ward. Or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18+. plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.